0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The surface of the water is broken for a moment. A gasp, a muffled cry. But it's the last time. Then there's silence. The water closes in and the surface re-levels, as though nothing has ever disturbed it. But the terror that was there just a moment before still hangs in the air, thick and suffocating. And for two women, this is just the beginning of the nightmare. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to episode 116, The Rhodes Park Murders. In many of the cases I discuss on the podcast, we see how young South Africans struggle significantly with social and economic hardships, so I was excited to come across the podcast that's sponsoring today's episode. Change in One Generation is a new podcast series about young South Africans rising above hardship and adapting to change. The show is hosted by legendary journalist Ruda Landman and leadership expert Dr. Frank Magwegue. Subscribe to Change in One Generation on Apple Podcasts, Google Play or Spotify or go to changepodcasts.co.za for more information. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And... It's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming, and for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you. Are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. Thank you to Linda James, Michael, Crystal van Rieenen, N. Dutton-Harris, Nicole, Brunilda, Jason, Susan Burney, Philippa Norberg, Shea-Reese Davies, Vanessa Dutton, Heidi Dupre, Talita Barnes, Tian Lo, Kathy van Eerden, Liesel, Maxine Schultz, and Bonnie Bateman for your support on Patreon as well as Ilka zensky for your support on PayPal. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout-out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. I'll warn you up front that today is a heavy episode. None of the cases I cover are ever really not heavy, but this one is rough. You'll notice that the title is a bit different from usual too. Usually I don't use the titles that the media assigns to cases. Where possible, I try to label episodes with the victims' names, because at the end of the day, These stories belong to them. Today, though, I can't do that, unfortunately, and it's actually to protect the victims. As you'll discover as we get deeper into this episode, there are four victims in this case, and the two surviving victims are the spouses of the two deceased victims. The two surviving victims are also rape survivors and for both legal and ethical reasons, I can't and won't identify them, although they have been identified in some media articles and they have identified themselves. It's simply not my place to do that. Because of them being married to the deceased victims, if I identify those two victims then I by default identify their spouses so I also can't use the full names of those victims either. I'll be using the deceased victim's real first names, and I'll be replacing the surviving victim's names with pseudonyms. In researching today's case, I used an episode of Dr. van Staden's series, Autopsy, as well as several media articles related to the case. So let's get into... Episode 116 The Rhodes Park Murders The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Rhodes Park today is described on the Johannesburg City Parks and Zoo website as, quote, a modestly sized park which is truly great in creative stature. A marvellous mix of stepping stones and railway sleepers leads you through the park, along the lanes, over the waterfalls, through thickets and past beautiful ponds. Adding to this special appeal is a small amphitheatre, where theatrical performances are occasionally hosted, end quote. It is, and was always, intended to be a bit of a pause area in the suburban bustle of the surrounding area called Kensington, in South Africa's Gauteng province. Kensington was established in 1897 by a German immigrant called Marx Langemann, the intention was for the area to be marketed as a health resort of sorts, where people wanting to get away from the dust of the mine dumps could enjoy the shade offered by the multitude of trees. To attract the people he believed would benefit most from the area, Langemann named the streets of Kensington after British Anglo-Boer war generals, British lords, and British-owned warships he allocated 13 acres of the land within Kensington to the establishment of a park, which in his mind would be similar to Wimbledon Common in London. Sticking with his naming theme, he named the park for Cecil John Rhodes, who was a British mining magnate and politician in the country at the time. Throughout the years, as is the case with many areas such as this, Rhodes Park has become less than ideal in terms of safety. Although during the day, many families do still feel safe enough to visit Rhodes Park, for the most part it's now well known that it's not somewhere you want to be after dark. In 2015, local residents would still venture on a dusk walk in the area though. Robberies were already very common at that point point and anyone walking there would still stick to the lit paths and keep their wits about them. On Saturday the 17th of October 2015, two couples decided to go for an early evening walk. Zukisa and his wife Tembi, and Siswe and his wife Anna, had been at a church event earlier in the day and were still dressed in their church clothes when they left their homes in Kensington. Zukisa and Tembi had left all their valuables at home and only Seaswear had his cell phone on him as they set out on their walk. They were aware of the risk of being mugged everywhere, not just in Rhodes Park, and they were already attuned to not taking risks. As the two couples were preparing to leave their home that night, A group of men were nursing a bottle of brandy outside a hair salon in Bazadenhote Street, Yeovil. They would then head off to Rhodes Park. The park was essentially their place of work. They made money by mugging people in and around the park on weekends. During the week it was easier to mug people going to and from work, but on the weekends Rhodes Park still drew people, and sometimes those people were intoxicated and easier to control. For the most part, the muggings didn't get violent. Occasionally, a drunk male victim would fight back, and they'd have to punch him. But on that night, something changed. When the five men who usually worked together got to Rhodes Park... At some points, they joined up with another group that operated in the area, and the dynamic seemed to shift. One man would say that when they arrived at the park, there were quite a few large groups of people drinking there. The men waited until the larger groups had dispersed. They knew well enough not to take on too many people at once. The whole point behind mugging was to overpower and present a threatening front to the victim. That couldn't be done if there were too many people around. As they sat waiting and drinking, though, the park emptied out. And soon enough, four possible targets came into view. Zukisa, Tembi, Seaswear and Anna laughed and chatted as they walked. The sun had set over Rhodes Park Lake, and long shadows loomed over the water as the lights in the park flicked on, illuminating the path in front of them. It was a beautiful night. The weather was perfect, and each couple held hands as they walked. They had no idea they were being watched. It didn't take much communication for the group of criminals to know that they were going to target the four people walking toward them. As they came into view, the energy in the group shifted. Conversation lulled, and the muscles in the jaws of the men twitched, as their eyes flicked over the clothes the four were wearing. The couples were, in reality, far from wealthy. They were working-class people, but all four took pride in how they dressed, especially when they attended church events, and they looked smart that day. The men in their best shoes, smart pants, collared shirts and pullover jerseys. The women in pretty summer dresses. For the group of four, there was a very distinct before and after on that pass through Rhodes Park that night. One minute they were laughing and chatting, and next they were surrounded. The combination of the two small groups that had joined that night swelled their number to twelve, and all the men surrounded the two couples in an instant. The prey was cornered before they knew what was happening. Then the barking of orders and intimidation began there's no greater weapon in a surprise attack than controlled chaos. To the victim it must appear as chaos, shouting, shoving, weapons flashing, intimidation, and to the predator it is entirely controlled. Their purpose is clear, overwhelm, confuse and subdue. A few of the men were armed with weapons, knives and what looked like a gun, but would later be proven to be a replica. To the four victims, it would not have mattered. It looked like a gun, and the man with the wild eyes waving it at them said it was one. They certainly weren't going to find out. The knives were most definitely real, their blades glinting in the park lights and they too were being waved and sliced through the air as though the men holding them were practising what they might do if their victims didn't comply. But Tsukisa, Tembi, Seaswe and Anna did comply. All four knew better than to try and fight back. When the screamed order came to lie down, they lay down as flat on the ground as they could. At times it was difficult to know who to listen to. Many of the men barked conflicting orders, but one man seemed to take control. He demanded their valuables. Between them they produced a cell phone and a gold ring. That was all they had on them. The men were unhappy. Grumbling began between them, and then their fury boiled over. What came next happened in a jumble. No one could ever quite determine what happened first or whether the trauma the women were about to endure had coincided with their husband's own trauma. What is certain is that the women were sexually assaulted and raped digitally while the husbands were forced to lay nearby. Some of the group raped Tembi and Anna while others pulled off items of clothing and bound their husbands' hands and feet. The women cried out to their husbands, and the men called back. The women's panties were cut from their bodies with knives. The blades held to their throats in a promised threat. if They dared to move. The man who'd seemed to take the lead in the large group called out that because they didn't have any valuables for them they would have to take blood instead. In glimpses while they themselves were being attacked the woman watched in horror as some of the men picked their husbands up and carried them towards the water. It would later emerge that when the violence had started some of the men had scurried away perhaps wanting no part of what they saw was about to happen, but also not interested in risking their own lives to stop it. Eight remained at the water's edge. As Tembi and Anna were subjected to brutal sexual assaults from several of the men, they heard splashes, and struggling to see what was happening, they realised that Siswe and Zukisa were being thrown into the water. Neither man could swim, and even if they could, they were bound. Later, police divers would say that even the strongest of swimmers without being bound would struggle to swim in the mass of vegetation that lay just under the surface of the lake in Rhodes Park. As their husbands cried out for help, squirming and wriggling to break free of their binds, one of them began to pray. The women joined in, holding on to the connection as long as they could, crying until they could no longer hear their husband's voices. Their attackers laughed as they cried. They asked the women why their husbands were stupid enough to go swimming in the lake instead of a swimming pool. Across the park, Thomas Rivombo was working at a restaurant when he heard something strange. He would later realise he'd heard the final cries of Seaswe and Zukisa, but at the time he couldn't identify the garbled words. He stood on a chair to look over the restaurant wall toward the lake. He saw nothing in the water, as by that time the two victims had already submerged. But he saw a large group of men... And two women. Something was wrong. He rushed to his boss and asked him to call police. It would take some time to eventually find a cell phone that was charged, and when Thomas called the police station, the line was engaged. He only had five rand airtime, so as a last resort, he sent a please call me to his cousin, who was a police officer. Thankfully, he called him back. As he did, Thomas was rushing over to the scene. The group of men had dispersed, and only the two women remained. They were distraught, and Thomas could barely understand what they were saying, but they pointed to the water and begged for help to save their husbands. Thomas was still on the phone with his cousin and relayed that it appeared that someone had gone into the water at Rhodes Park Lake, and there were two women saying they'd been attacked. Within a few minutes, sirens could be heard in the distance. Both Tembi and Anna were so understandably distraught that it took a few minutes for first responders to understand what had happened. Police, who knew Rhodes Park well, realised that there was no way that the men were still alive, but it was difficult to explain to the distraught women that extracting their husbands was not going to be a rescue mission, but rather a body recovery. To reduce the trauma on the women, they were taken to the hospital and then to the police station. One victim had been raped both digitally and with a penis. The other victim had been raped digitally. The latter victim, when asked, initially said she had not been raped, because she didn't know that what had happened to her still qualified as rape. And sadly, by the time this was explained to her, it was too late to carry out a rape kit and record her injuries. Thankfully, this would not prove as a major impediment in the case itself, but it's a reminder that we need to talk about these definitions with women and men everywhere to ensure that the legal definition of rape in South Africa is understood, which of course includes rape with a penis, fingers, any other body part, a foreign object, and oral rape. It's not a super easy topic to bring up in normal conversation, but it's something that at the very least should be discussed with young people as part of sex education so that they, in turn, can educate others. While the women waited at the police station for news of their husbands, back at Rhodes Park, a team of police divers had been called in. Large spotlights were placed on top of police cars to illuminate the water, and divers carefully picked their way through the treacherous waters, looking for the two men. At 9pm, Zizwe's body was found. He was pulled up onto the bank, photographed and covered. There was no doubt that he was long deceased. Divers worked through the mass of underwater vegetation for another two hours until they recovered Zukisa's body. He, of course, was also deceased. Later that night, Tembi and Anna were informed that Seaswear and Zukisa were dead, and their lives would never be the same again. On the morning after the attack, a large team of investigators was called to Rhodes Park. Among the officers that day was Detective Warrant Officer Bruce Funderscafe. At that time, he'd been with the police service for 25 years and was attached to the SAPS in Cleveland. Fandescafe recalls being called to the park that morning and having no idea what he was going there for, but realizing when he saw all the SAPS vehicles parked and also when he saw the media lining up that this was something big. He recalls with a laugh how he and his partner had playfully argued as they walked through the park about whose case this was going to be. And when his partner saw the huge media contingent, he told Fandescafe, this is definitely yours. Fandescafe tells the producers of Autopsy that when he stood at the water's edge that morning and received the briefing about the case, he was horrified. Although he would dealt with some pretty rough cases in the past, there was something about the coldness of the actions of the group of offenders that sent chills down his spine and without a doubt, it would become one of the most pivotal cases of his career. Van der Skaif was appointed as the investigating officer in the case, and after taking statements from Tembi and Anna, his belief that this was one of the most horrendous cases he'd ever encountered was only affirmed. He also felt a bit of a sinking feeling when he heard that this had seemingly been a completely random stranger crime they're the most difficult to solve and the fact that there were between eight and twelve perpetrators would only make it more difficult he had no doubts that they were going to need the help of the public and as such he reached out to every police station in the area so that they could start talking to their street informants The men who'd done this were part of the city's criminal underworld and it would be that same criminal underworld that helped the police to find them. This case would take a combination of excellent police work, helpful members of the public and a bit of street informant assistance as well as targeted coverage from the media to solve it. In terms of police work, It wouldn't just be Cleveland Police and Fandescafe who contributed either. Constable Lufuno Sono had been born and grown up in Kensington. He worked as a police officer at Yeovil Police Station, just a few jurisdictions over. And when he heard about the Rhodes Park case, he knew he had to do what he could to help. Even though he was not formally assigned to the case at that point, Sonos spent his days off after the attacks going door to door in Kensington speaking to residents, many of whom he'd known most of his life, and three days after the attacks that work bore fruit. A resident contacted him to say he lived on a street near Rhodes Park and his CCTV cameras had captured a group of men running down the road around the same time the attacks had taken place on the 17th of October. Sonor went and viewed the footage and felt sure that these men had something to do with the crime. Eight men were captured on CCTV. The quality was not terribly good, but it was good enough to get stills to use when speaking with informants around town. Sonor contacted Vandeskaif and, and eventually, Sono was officially added to the investigation team. Soon, they had their first name. A local informant told Sono that he recognized one of the men in the CCTV stills as Tabo Nkala. Nkala had been in prison for a two-year stint for robbery and had been released just a few months before. He was still on parole. But the address he'd given the Department of Correctional Services when he was released on parole bore no fruits when police visited. The people there claimed never to have heard of Tabungkala, and he definitely did not live there. Feelers went out throughout the community in search for the man. At the same time, the stills from the CCTV were released to the media and circulated among informants in the area. When this crime hit the headlines, the public responded with an understandable amount of horror, and the fact that there were 12 men on the run that could have taken part in such a terrible crime was extremely disturbing. The positive side of this terror was that it motivated people to be on the lookout and carefully consider the pictures they saw and wonder if they knew or had seen any of the men. In addition, The SAPS announced that a 100,000 rand reward would be given to anyone who provided information that led to the arrest and conviction of any of the offenders. On the 1st of November, after Officer Sono had spent several days searching for Tabo Nkala, the first arrest was made. Nkala was arrested at a place he'd been staying at in Yeovil. The man would later claim that from the moment police arrested him, his rights had been violated. He claimed that he was beaten and fed information to include in his eventual confession. In this confession though, which he repeated to the officers and to a magistrate, he named four of his accomplices. On three of the names, the information was just confirmation of what police had already discovered. In the days before Nkala's arrest, informants and members of the public had managed to identify another three of the assailants and Nkala's confession only confirmed that. Nkala named Admon Lovu, Mduduzi Lawrence and a fourth man who's never been publicly named for reasons I'll explain later. The names Nkala provided made up the group that had initially met in Yeovil. Nkala didn't know the real name of the fifth man who'd made up their group as he'd only known him by a street name. Nkala claimed in his confession that he had been present when the robbery, rapes and murders took place but he'd only participated in the robbery. He said that Nduduzi Lawrence had been the person who'd driven the murders. Nkala was charged with robbery, two counts of rape, and two counts of murder, and detained in custody. With three more names confirmed, police were able to release better images of the wanted men to the public, and tips flooded in, and on the 12th of November, Admor Ndlovu was taken into custody. He too was charged with robbery, rape, and murder. While police continued to search for the other men, Legal proceedings continued against the two who'd already been arrested. On the 24th of November, Tabung Kala failed in a bail application when it was revealed that he was a Zimbabwean national who was in the country illegally. It would later be revealed that Admor Ndlovu was also in South Africa illegally and he did not apply for bail. Both men were held in custody while police attempted to locate additional suspects. Ideally, they wanted to bring as many of the accused to trial as possible at the same time, but by the same token, they could not impede too significantly on the first two accused' right to a speedy trial, so it would be a fine balance as to how long they would wait to start official proceedings. The press was regularly asked to redistribute the photographs of the remaining wanted men and this paid off in December 2015 when a member of the public who'd been in Pretoria applying for a visa at one of the embassies there spotted a man he recognised from news coverage of the horrific Rhodes Park crime. Mduduzi Lawrence was arrested when the member of the public flagged down a police car and told Brooklyn police that they believed the man was one of the wanted individuals. The officers agreed. This arrest demonstrated the power of the media when used effectively, and also the importance of the public in helping to apprehend criminals. While it is most certainly the SAPS's job to track these individuals down, it's also not possible for them to have eyes everywhere at all times and keeping our eyes open for wanted or missing people is a small part we can play which can have a huge impact on a case. With a third man in custody, and this man being the one that the other two had said was a major role player in both the rapes and the murders, the NPA decided it was time to head to trial. It was always going to be difficult to locate all 12 men, and the saps's priority had been to locate and try at the very least those men who directly played a role in the rapes and murders they had to start somewhere and they'd rather be able to give the victims three convictions than none in early 2016 the trial of Tabu kala edmond lovu and hmdozi lawrence began the testimonies of the estate witnesses was extremely emotional on all fronts, from the first responders, who despite having long tenures in law enforcement, were deeply emotionally impacted by this crime, to the witnesses who'd arrived on the scene to help the women, to the victims themselves, who in indescribable acts of bravery both took the stand to testify about their ordeals. After the victims' testimonies, the court sat in stunned silence. The horror of what they'd experienced, suddenly a palpable weight in the courtroom. Although defense attorneys are well known for attempting to discredit rape survivors in any way possible, the attorneys for the accused in this case told the court they had no questions for the victims. And... This small mercy spared the two women even further trauma. Dr. Histelf and Staden performed the autopsies on Siswe and Zukisa, and in the episode of Autopsy, she explains how she found lacerations and marks on the chests of the men which were likely incurred during the initial attack. But she'd found that the cause of death for both was drowning. She said that when she'd received the bodies the men were not bound. It's likely that these bindings had either come off in the water after they'd died or during the body recovery process. There would also be some confusion in court about whether the men had been forced to strip down before being placed in the water or not. Photographs of the bodies showed that the men were partially clothed and the autopsy report indicates that at least one of the men was also partially clothed, but some witnesses had claimed that the bodies were completely nude. This point was really neither here nor there in the grand scheme of things, but it was a small inconsistency that the defense could build on to create doubt. Another was whether the accused had intended for the men to drown or not intent could play into the severity of sentence if they were found guilty, and their lawyers attempted to claim that the men were only asked to wade into the water to stop them from chasing the group when they fled the scene, and that the men hadn't wanted or expected the victims to die. Quite a lot of evidence was led by the state to refute this, the victims testified that their husbands had been thrown into the water and that they had told their attackers they couldn't swim. The women also said that one of the men, believed to be Mdadoozi Lawrence, had made it very clear that the men were going to be killed because they hadn't had valuables to give the group. A police diver also testified that the masses of vegetation that lay just beneath the surface of the water was very visible to the naked eye, and anyone could have seen it would have been impossible to swim there. She said it certainly would have made it impossible for the men to wade themselves out into the lake, and even the most experienced swimmers would likely find it difficult to swim in Rhodes Park Lake. A shop owner testified that he'd been approached by two of the men who he identified as Nkala and Lawrence around 7pm that night. This would have been just half an hour after the crime had been committed. The men had sold him a cell phone, which would later be identified as belonging to one of the victims. He'd paid the men 320 Rand for the phone and resold it to another customer just an hour later after overriding the password on the phone. This man had agreed to testify in court in exchange for immunity from prosecution for purchasing stolen goods. It emerged that the gold ring taken from one of the female victims had been sold at a gold exchange in Rocky Street that same night, and the men got 150 rand from that. They had also taken the victim's shoes but thrown them away in a dustbin when they realized that although they were well cared for and polished to a shine, the shoes were old and the men hadn't wanted to keep them. While these three men were on trial, police were contacted by officials in Zimbabwe. One of the other men on their wanted list had been arrested while crossing the border from South Africa into Zimbabwe. They detained him, and police there now wanted to know what they should do with him. Thunderscafe would later explain that this would put them in a bit of a predicament. While they could certainly have a separate trial for the false man, it would be an expensive exercise, and they didn't want to delay the trial they had ongoing or risk convictions they might get in that trial by delaying to bring this false accused back to South Africa. By the same token, the Zimbabwean police were not willing to hold on to the man forever. He'd committed no crimes they were aware of in their country, and they wanted assurances that if he was deported to South Africa, he would be given a speedy trial. But the SAPS could not promise that, because it seemed unlikely they'd be able to duplicate the trial within a few months, considering how many cases needed to go through the court system. After consultation with the victims, they decided to allow Zimbabwean authorities to release the man. This is why he's never been named in media articles. He was released and does not seem to have ever been detained for this crime again. In early 2017, both sides submitted their closing arguments. A few days later, the judge found that the state had proven the three accused were in fact guilty of all charges against them. The judge said that regardless of whether the men had been the ones to physically throw the victims into the water, they'd all acted with a single intent and held equal responsibility. The judge commended the police, the public and media for working together to help bring some justice to what could have been a case that may have never been solved at all. He urged the SAPS to continue to search for the outstanding participants in the crime as society remained at risk until they were all apprehended. During the sentencing proceedings, the victims once again testified to get across how deeply they'd been impacted by the crime. Both women admitted that they'd attempted to take their own lives in the weeks after the crime. They'd both felt that they were somehow partially responsible for what had happened and could never shake the feeling that they should have done more to try and save their husbands. The women were supported in court by advocacy agencies, friends and family, and both asked that the judge hand down the harshest sentences possible to ensure that they could have some form of justice for their loss and trauma and the judge agreed. In sentencing the three accused, the judge handed down four life sentences to each man, one for each murder and one for each rape. Upon hearing the sentences, the two surviving victims collapsed in relief onto the floor of the courtroom Tabung Kala, Admon Blovu, and Mduduzi Lawrence are serving their sentences in maximum security facilities. They will be eligible for parole in 2040. Sadly, none of the other men involved in the attack have ever been apprehended. In the months after the attack, security in Rhodes Park was beefed up. More lights were installed and security guards were hired to control access after dark. In 2019, the park was once again in the news, but for all the wrong reasons, when the body of a man was found dumped in the park. It appeared that the man had been abducted from his place of work, taken to the park, and shot in the head in what police believed at the time to be a targeted hit. There is no further information that I could find about whether this case was ever resolved. After the sentences were handed down, Tembi and Anna left Johannesburg. Tembi went back to live with her family in Grahamstown but says she found that she simply didn't fit in there anymore. She changed as a person as a result of her trauma and she felt like she needed a completely new beginning to match this new person she'd become. Both Anna and Tembi ended up moving to Durban in KwaZulu-Natal In 2021, six years after their horrendous experience, the woman spoke to a journalist about where they were in their lives and how they felt about the case that had horrified the nation. Anna had started working for the SAPS in a call centre that links victims of crimes up with the detectives on their cases. She also volunteers in the GBV centre of her local police station to sit with victims. Occasionally, if she feels it will be helpful, she shares her own story with them. In the beginning, she would cry while she shared what had happened to her, but by 2021, she said she was feeling more and more capable of telling her story without being overwhelmed by it. Tembi also went into an occupation that would help others, and in which she'll likely be around women and men who've experienced violent crimes. At the time of the article being written, she was doing her practicals to qualify as a nurse. In the days and months after the crime, the two women were given shelter in a GBV organisation. They lived in the shelter and received counselling and support. Both women said that during that time, they felt supported and received regular updates on their case, but neither woman feels that justice was completely done. They say that since leaving Johannesburg, despite ensuring that they are contactable, they've had no news of any updates in their case. And although they are grateful that at least three of the men faced justice and were given harsh sentences, they wonder why the rest of the gang was never apprehended. Anna has remarried, and Tembi is with a new partner too. Both women said it took them a long time to even consider getting into a relationship again, as they both felt that they would be betraying their husbands. Eventually though, they had to acknowledge that they were lucky enough to still have their entire lives ahead of them and they would be serving their husband's memories far better by embracing the rest of their lives and making the best of it, rather than allowing the murderers and rapists to steal even more of their lives. Essentially, their happiness now is their justice. Each day they live wholeheartedly, happily, without shame and without fear, is another day that the perpetrators don't get to win. Although they'd like to see every single man who was present that night behind bars, they also understand that the likelihood of that ever happening is minuscule. So instead they embrace what they can control their own happiness and their own success. We know that at the points that the rapes began to happen, there were at least eight men present. Only four were apprehended and one of those was released. The investigating officer said that the intel they'd received was that many of the other men had fled to other countries and provinces. Five men, who either directly participated in And or were happy to witness a brutal double rape and horrific double murder, still walk our streets. Considering the nature of the crime, a stranger crime with a huge number of participants, I absolutely will give it to police that just apprehending and convicting the three they did was a huge feat. But Considering the cold-blooded nature of this crime, it's still pretty scary that people like this are out there, and absolutely undoubtedly still committing crimes. Unfortunately, when foreign nationals and people who are in our country illegally are involved in crimes like this, the focus often gets shifted to an almost xenophobic blame game and a bit of a delusional, at least in my opinion, belief that crime is caused by foreigners. Crime is caused by criminals. And let me tell you that South Africans do a pretty darn good job of committing enough horrific crimes all on their own. Does the impunity of being essentially a ghost in a foreign country, undocumented and often untraceable, help? If someone has criminal intent, yes, I'm sure it does. We do need to do a better job of ensuring that our borders are safer for everyone. Because when foreigners who really just want to come to our country to live better lives are cast with the cloak of illegal criminal immigrants, we shut down the possibility that people from other countries can come here and contribute to our economy positively. When we push the delusion that foreigners are solely responsible for crime levels, we also close ourselves off to the reality that while people of all nationalities commit crime, the vast majority of those committing crime in South Africa are South Africans. In 2017, General Deliwe Delanga of the SAPS was reported to have claimed that about 60% of suspects arrested for violent crimes in Kauteng were illegal immigrants. The Institute for Security Studies examined this statement and found a few inconsistencies which seemed to point to this being a convenient out for the SAPS and a blatant promotion of xenophobia. Firstly, the general gave no data basis for the statement. Secondly, the SAPS do not have a category of crime called violent crime on which to base such a statistic. And thirdly, the SAPS does not gather data about the nationalities of the people they arrest. So really it's a mystery where this claim came from. Actual data shows that only 7% of convicted offenders nationwide are foreign nationals. So, if 60% of the people being arrested for so-called violent crimes in Gauteng, at least, are not South African, why does that number not translate even remotely to convictions? And the reason that statements like this make me feel like the SAPS leadership is actually using these claims to mask its own failings, is because of what the real data tells us about their own performance in the same year that General made that statement. According to its 2016-2017 annual report, the SAPS is able to detect perpetrators in only 23.9% of murders, and in 17.9% of aggravated robberies. This means that in more than 75% of murders and over 80% of aggravated robberies, the police have no idea who the perpetrators are. It therefore isn't possible to make accurate assertions that undocumented foreign nationals commits most crimes, such as murder and robbery in my opinion, it's a smokescreen. Are there social and economic issues that are caused by our country being overloaded by illegal immigrants? Absolutely. And those issues should be dealt with on their own merits and difficulties. But crime in this country is not going to be solved by allowing ourselves to mask the truth with delusions many of the men involved in this particular crime were foreigners and they were in the country illegally. But I wonder whether that makes any difference at all to Tembi and Anna. Do you think they care what country their rapists and murderers who so irrevocably changed their lives were born in? I seriously doubt it. In fact, in my opinion, When we put too much focus on the nationality of these attackers, we do these survivors and future victims a huge disservice, because we allow ourselves to believe that if we can just keep the foreigners out, everything will be fine. And just like with family units, communities and other groups, the danger so often does not come from the outside. It's already within. where and Zukisa went walking with their partners that night to enjoy a beautiful evening. Never in a million years could they have foreseen how that walk would end. Because for them, just ordinary people going about their lives, one human being doesn't do that to another. Drowning especially for a person who cannot swim and who's never had any participation in water sports is probably one of the most horrific ways to die. Honestly, I cannot even fathom it. And being cast into the water with at least having your limbs free to fight back in some way is one thing, but being bound, feeling completely helpless... Absolutely nothing you can do will save yourself. That is just an act of pure cowardice. The men who cast Siswe and Zukisa into the water that night were spineless. They saw two couples, happy, trying to make the best of life, dressed in their best clothes despite being far from wealthy, and they despised. Their happiness. They despised the strength they saw and so instead of just taking the possessions they wanted, they sought to destroy them completely. I have wondered if Tembi and Anna were destined for the same fate as their husbands and the group got spooked and ran off before they could carry that part out. Or maybe those men realized that leaving them alive would have been far more painful. Maybe that was all part of the plan. For Siswe and Zukisa, there is no hope for taking their lives back, but their memories have continued to outweigh the presence of these offenders like an elephant versus a mouse. Every person who speaks of them does so with reverence and fondness and maybe that's one small thing they can never take away from them. Anna and Tembi despite initially struggling so significantly and understandably with their trauma that they considered ending their own lives have come to realize that their power was never taken away. They choose if that happens. And they've decided that those men, regardless of whether they're incarcerated or not, don't get to take anything else away from them. They may have taken their peace for a time and stolen one version of a future they could have had, but those men will always be less than the power of those two women. And although every smile might still be tinged with a little sadness for their lost loved ones, there are still smiles, and there are still days, and that hope belongs to them alone. Sees and Anzukisa rest gently. Anna and Tembi, live in power and peace. Thank you for listening to episode 116, The Rhodes Park Murders. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media, We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Thanks again to this week's sponsor, Change in One Generation. To hear amazing stories of change, go to changepodcasts.co.za. I'm sure you'll enjoy the show.